you're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. We pray that you would truly be magnified in all that we say and do today. It's all about you. If you're lifted up, you will draw all men to yourself, Lord. And so we just pray that you would do that. Because we need you. Galveston needs you. The world needs you. I pray that you would show us that again. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to encourage you. uh, We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23 today. Um, I've been making these sheets. We haven't had them for a while because we've been out of Ephesians, but we're going to be returning today. Uh, They are on this table. This is the scripture references that we will be looking at today. Don't feel embarrassed to get up right now and to get one. This is the time, okay? Um, But these are the scripture references that we're going to be uh, going through uh, today, okay? So like I said, we are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This morning we return to the book of Ephesians. Uh, This section, verses 15 through uh, 23, uh, is actually going to be a three-part sermon series uh, as we will look at the purpose of this prayer uh, that Paul gives to the Ephesians. Then we will look at the actual petitions in this prayer, and then we'll conclude by looking at the power behind this prayer. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. This morning, we'll just be looking at verses 15 through 16 uh, and the purpose of Paul's prayer. The main purpose, the overarching purpose of Paul's prayer is his great love for these people, his great love for these people. And we'll see uh, that what moves a pastor to thankfulness is when the people of his congregation express a faith in the Lord Jesus, and a love which is directed towards all of the saints. Let's read um, this passage, this uh, prayer of Paul's, uh, which will also serve as our opening prayer as well. Verse 15, Ephesians 1, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. What we have seen so far in this uh, book of Ephesians uh, in the past couple of months is we've seen that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've seen that we, as Christians, as those in Christ, live in two realms. We live in the physical realm and we live in the spiritual realm 
as well. And we are to function in both of those. And the foundation for our functioning in the physical and the spiritual realm is the fact that we have been chosen by God to be holy and blameless before him. We have been made right in his sight. We have been adopted into his family. We have been bought back from bondage to Satan and to sin. And we've been brought into the family of God and we have been forgiven. And because of all of this, you and I have been sealed by his promised Holy Spirit. And we are guaranteed an inheritance most of which we will receive in the future, but now we receive it here as well. The great inheritance that we have talked about, that we always talk about, is this. It's not, the, uh, it's not ultimately the mansions that are waiting us, or the streets of gold, or the reunions with those people who have gone on before us, or even one day the absence of pain uh, and suffering in this life. We get all of those things. There's no question about that. But the greatest inheritance that we get, and don't ever forget this, is that we get God himself. We inherit God. We get to be with God forever. Uh, Psalm 1611 says this, In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our greatest inheritance, the greatest promise in the Old Testament is, I will be their God and they will be my people. There is a double ownership going on. We own God and God owns us. That is by far the greatest inheritance. The rest is awesome, but God is the gospel. God is our great inheritance. Paul reminding them, uh, is reminding them of all of these things, all that is theirs in Christ in this opening chapter. And before he goes on to continue what Jesus has done, and as we'll see that Jesus has taken uh, those who are separated and brought them near, before he goes on, he pauses and he offers a prayer to God for them. And ultimately, this is a prayer for understanding, as we will see next week when we look at the specifics in verses 17 through 19. But he begins with thanksgiving for them, and that is going to be our focus today. He is thankful for two main things that I want you to note today, okay? He is thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he is thankful for the love that they have directed towards all of the saints, okay? Those two things, more than anything, mark a person as a true follower of Jesus. Your faith in Jesus and your love for other people. So the first thing that he thanks God for them is for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now I believe that he has two aspects of faith in mind here. The first is that initial saving faith. Uh, that is talked about in the Bible, that moment when they heard about Jesus and that they believed that Jesus is who he says he is, namely the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and that he did what he said he would do, namely living the life that you and I were unable to live and then being punished for everything wrong that you and I ever did. They believed that. Okay, they believed that, and that is what gave them the standing before God. So he's talking about that initial saving faith. This, is, this kind of faith is spoken of in uh, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and 
believe, let's have faith, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that's declared righteous before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is this faith that secures for us a right standing before God. Okay, without righteousness, perfect righteousness, you cannot stand before God. You will never be able to stand before God. This faith in Jesus is what declares us righteous before God, and it gives us a place in his family and in his kingdom. And what does Jesus rule? He rules over everything, and we will reign with him. The other aspect of faith that I believe is talked about in here is that day-to-day faith, that, continue, that uh, continuing to believe in Jesus, continuing to believe that he is who he says he is, continuing to believe that he will say that he, that he will do what he said he will do. And this gives us a trust in him. Because he is so faithful, we can trust him, even when he is asking us to do the seemingly impossible. Even when he is asking us to do something that may alter, completely alter the course of our lives. It is that faith that causes us to make those hard decisions because we know that it pleases God and we know that in the end he will reward us. This does not mean that everything will immediately work out for us, right? I had faith in Jesus and I'm the happiest person ever. No, we know that sometimes you may not receive the outcome until we get into heaven and we get that final reward. This kind of faith, uh, the second aspect of faith, I believe is really uh, laid out for us in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, If you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this chapter is referred to as the Great Hall of Faith um, because it talks about faith over and over and over again. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 and 2, he defines what faith is. And I want you to listen to this. We can't make too many comments on this, but just listen to the word of God. He says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then skipping down to verse 6, he talks about the importance of faith. He says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The rest of this chapter is filled with example after example of those who trusted God in seemingly impossible situations that altered the course of their lives and yet they were rewarded. Um, Some were rewarded in that life but all would be rewarded in the life to come. Verse 7, he begins with Noah, and he says, By faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 9, by faith, Sarah. And then the commentary regarding these people's lives is found in verses 13 through 16. Listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. People, that is amazing, amazing. We could spend all day there. But he continues on by sharing the example of Abraham's faith in verse 17, and then of Isaac's faith in verse, eight, uh, in verse 20, and then of Jacob's faith in verse 21, of Joseph's faith in 22, and then of Moses' faith in t- verse 23. And then regarding Moses' faith in verses 24 through 26, listen to what he says again. He says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather This is crazy. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ being persecuted, being hunted, he, he considered that greater riches than all of the treasures in Egypt. The writer of Hebrews gives more examples. And then finally in verses 32 through 38, he realizes that he could go on and on and on. And so he says this in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They were considered trash in the world. And God's assessment is like, the world is not worthy of you. This is the kind of faith, as we mentioned before, that results in a radical life-altering decisions in our life, uh, which sometimes are um, rewarded in this life, but always in the life to come. This is the kind of faith that caused Paul to break forth into thanksgiving for the people in the church in Ephesus. He had heard of their dynamic trust in the Lord, and this made his heart rejoice. I'm going to tell you, when people are abandoned for the gospel of Jesus, when they're totally sold out, this is what brings joy to the heart of a pastor. I want to say one more thing about this faith before we move on to the love that Paul talks about that they had for one another. I want to ask this question, who is this faith? Who uh, was their faith in? Their faith was in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. The word Lord means master. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Their faith was in their Lord, their master, and in their Savior. 
Here's the point that I want to make. I want you to hear this. You cannot receive Jesus as your Savior and reject him as your Lord. Okay? You cannot receive Jesus as your Savior and reject him as your Lord. You cannot say, I want to be protected from the wrath of God. I want to avoid hell. But I want to continue to call the shots in my life. I want to continue to do what I want to do. If you don't receive him by faith as Lord, then he is not your Savior. Okay? I know that that's harsh. I know that you're like, whoa. Okay? But I think that many churches are doing a a disservice to people. I think that they're misleading people and boasting of false converts. People who are told that you can come to Jesus as you are, which is absolutely true. But that you can actually remain as you are. You don't have to give up sin. You don't have to change at all. You can just come as you are and stay as you are. You're just kind of adding Jesus to the mix of your life as your Savior so that you don't have to go to hell. You don't have to listen to him. It'd be nice if you obeyed him, but he's more concerned about just saving you because he's so desperate for you to be with him. Almost Jesus is almost viewed as like, kind of like that, that woman who's in an abusive relationship that won't leave, right? She's not loved at all. She's not respected at all. She's just, she's just like, I'll stay here because it's someone. And it's almost like Jesus is like, ah, I just want to be with you. You can treat me any way that you want. Well, I don't believe that the Bible portrays Jesus like this. I will, ha- I will hasten to say, yes, Jesus is filled with love. Yes, praise God that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's us. But listen to Jesus' own words. In Luke 6, 46, he asked the question. He asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? How come you're saying, Master, Master, implied in that, in that title, Lord, is like, I will do whatever you say, but I won't listen to you. I won't do whatever you say. That's what they're doing. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? In Matthew seven twenty one, he said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay? You can pay me lip service all day. You can call me Lord, Lord all day. You can call me Master all day. But if you don't do what I say, then it's not true. It's not true. Matthew 16, 24, he said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A cross was an instrument of death. You are dying to yourself. I no longer call the shots. I no longer sit on the throne of my life. Someone else sits on the throne of my life. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. And you may have heard this before, but there's a saying that says this, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is free, but the annual dues will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. That's why Paul in Romans Uh, 14.9 says this, For this end Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The point of all these verses is that we must receive Jesus both as our master and our savior. 
James, if you've ever read the book of James, James talks about faith a lot. And James talks about a faith that is devoid of works, a faith that does not obey Christ. And James calls that a dead faith, a false faith, a faith that has zero power to save. Zero power to save. He talks about someone who's, who, who, who talks with their mouth but does not work it out in their actions. And I need to pause here for a second and I need to address a question. Am I espousing a Christianity that says that we are saved by both faith and works? And I hope that you know me well enough. I hope that you know this church well enough that that is not what I am doing. Okay, I'm not saying, hey, you have to, you got that initial faith that gets you in, but you have to keep working to keep yourself in. Perhaps Martin Luther said it the best when he said this, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And his point is this, is that we will do good works as a product of genuine faith. That if you are truly in Christ that as a product of that, not as a, not as a part of the saving act of it, you will do good works. Ephesians even 2, uh, 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. True faith, true genuine faith will manifest itself in obedience to Jesus. Oh, not perfectly, mind you. We will continue to sin. We will continue to do what God tells us not uh, to do. But it's that there, there will be a recognition that Jesus is Lord. There will be that desire uh, to learn what he requires and then actually put it into practice. Regarding 2 Corinthians five seventeen, which says, If anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, I love what he said. It's impacted me for years. He said this, Not only are we morally obligated to obey Jesus, we are creatively made to obey him. Okay, we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so I would urge anyone uh, who knows something is wrong and doesn't care, I would urge you, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourself. To examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith, if you've, if you've truly been born again. And let me remind you of this. All of Jesus' commands are for our good. God is not this cosmic killjoy in the sky that every time he sees that we're happy or excited about something, he throws down another rule. Oh, they're happy about that. Can't do that. Oh, they're laughing over here. Can't do that. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Here's what God knows. God knows that sin can bring a temporary joy and happiness but in the end, it will leave us empty and defeated and separated. That's why he gives those rules for us. Not to steal our joy, but to maximize our joy. God would rather us not go through the suffering that is brought on by sin. Well, not only uh, did the Ephesians have faith in the Lord Jesus they also had a love that was directed towards all the saints. Now, don't be confused by that word, saints, all right? It simply means a Christian. Someone who is a holy one, and they're holy 
because they've been declared holy because of their faith in Jesus. Where if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian today, you are a saint. Okay, you don't have to go through some canonization process or perform some miracle or whatever. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Okay, and so uh, notice that this love that they had was directed not towards some select Christians in the church, not, for, not towards those who were in their inner circle, those who were in their life group, right? Uh, the people who sat with them week after week in church. Uh, it wasn't directed towards people who they got along with well um, or that they liked. It was directed towards all of the people of God, even those who had different personalities and different passions, even with those who they did not always agree with and even sometimes sharply disagreed with in the church. This takes us back once again to Jesus as our Lord and Master, that he's the one who calls the shots, that he's the one who lays down the command, and we are to follow him. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, here's what Jesus said, a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you. And what is that? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35 tells us the outcome of this. He says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this all Galveston will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. God is love. God is love. And to love is to be like God. Okay? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that the more that you start to hang around someone, if you hang around them a lot, you start to take on their characteristics, you start to talk like them, start to act like them. The more that you and I are in continuous contact with God in prayer, And in Bible reading and with his people, the more we will start to act like God. We'll start to reflect his character. And God's greatest characteristic is love. It is love. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, 1 John is towards the end of the Bible. You got Revelation, and then before that you got uh, Jude, and then you got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So 1st John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I want you to listen to this command to love and the reason that is given. Okay? So here John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love question is, how has God shown his love for us? Well, he answers this in the next two verses. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me stop there. Propitiation, that's one of those big theological words. What in the world does it mean? Propitiation means the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice 
that satisfied the legal demands of the law and thus turned the wrath of God away from us. The wrath of God was turned towards Jesus. He was crucified. He was crushed by the Father. And therefore, the legal demands of the law were met in him. God's wrath is no longer directed at us. I've said this many times before. You need to get it. I need to get it. Every single sin is, even those those seemingly small sins, that little white lie, right? Not a big deal. Um, Every single sin carries with it the death penalty. Every single sin carries with it the death penalty. Death is separation from God. Every sin deserves that. God, in a demonstration of his great love for us, sent his son to live the life that you and I could not live. God said, I require perfection. And we're like, we can't do this. And then God lays down law after law after law. You have to follow this. You have to follow this. You have to follow this. And we're like, what in the world? We can't do this. And God says, I know you can't. I will send my son. My son will live it for you. He will live the perfect life of righteousness. And then he will go to a cross. And I will direct all of my wrath at your sin. And I will take him out for it. I will crush my son. Your sin will be laid on him. And I will punish him. In this act of God, in this, in this act of God, of our sins being punished in Jesus, God's wrath was satisfied. It was propitiated. Jesus was punished by the Father for every lie that I ever told, every lustful thought that I ever had, every selfish act that I ever had, everything that I ever did wrong, Jesus was punished for it. It's often objected to people, you know, God, you know, killing his son, that's like cosmic child abuse, right? God is God, right? Why can't he just change the rules? Why can't he just give everyone a pass, right? I'm changing the rules. Here's what it is. You know, everyone is good. You know, I was going to pour out my wrath. I was going to kill my son, but you know what? I'm God. I can do whatever I want. The fact is this. There are things that God cannot do, right? You do realize that. God cannot lie, right? God cannot contradict himself, Okay, and so God set up these rules in the beginning that the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. And here's the bottom line. Let me think about it this way. If you were the person solely responsible for burning down someone's multi-million dollar house, right? I mean, you just burnt it down to the ground. And you came to them and you said, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And they said, I will forgive you. And you said, what do I owe you? Don't worry about it. You don't owe me anything. Does the fact that them forgiving you and canceling the debt that you owed them, does that do anything to the condition of the house? No, it does nothing to the—the house is still burnt down to the ground. What they have done is they've shifted the debt from you to them. I will take care of it. And that's exactly what God did. God said, you owe too much. I will shift your debt to my son and I'll pay for it. And that's what he did. This is the love that God has for us. He continues in 1 John 4, verse 11. As a result of all of this that I've just told you, John says this. Listen to this. You need to get this. Beloved, if God so loved us, in every way that we've just explained, we also ought to love one another. 
People, this is just a logical conclusion. God has loved you. God has forgiven you so much that you should be willing to love people in this way as well. I want to look at the definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I want you to turn there as we close. I know that the last couple of weeks we've actually looked at this passage. Um, I don't apologize, right? Because you need to get this. I need to get this. The greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we better know what it means to love. And Paul lays down a pure definition under the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to go into a little bit more detail talking about some of these characteristics of love here. It is important that we truly know uh, what love is. Because if you were to read the first three verses of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that you would see that without love, you and I are absolutely nothing. Nothing. And that we can accomplish absolutely nothing in this life, nothing lasting in this life without love. The other thing that I want to remind you of is that these, all these characteristics of love that we're going to look at, love is patient and kind, they are all verbs. They're not adjectives. They are verbs. And you remember from elementary school and high school, what is a verb? An action word, right? It is an action word. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is an action. And the point is this. Love is only love when it's actually, when it's actually translated into actions. You can tell me that you love me all day. If it's not shown in your actions, then you don't truly love me. I could tell you that I love you all day. I could say that I love God all day. And if it's not translated into actions, it is nothing. Okay? In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Right? Not in just, oh, saying it. No, actually in the way that I live. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 4, here's what Paul says. He says, he begins by saying this, Love is patient. And as I go through these and explain them, I want you to be looking at your life and saying, am I this? Am I acting this way towards all of the saints, all of the people of God? Love is patient. To be patient means to be, have, uh, to, to be wronged, the ability to be wronged over and over again, to have it in your power to retaliate, but to never do so. To be wronged, even the same sin over and over perpetrated against you, to have it in your power to retaliate, but to not do so. This is the way that God is. Think about how many times you and I have committed the very same sin over and over again. And God's patience is directed at us. He does not wipe us out. Our sins have been forgiven. Love is patient. The second thing is love is kind. And this word literally means willing to help or assist. Willing to help or assist. It means to be useful. Okay, let me tell you what this means, okay? Uh, what love does is it looks at the people in the church, specifically starting there, and it says, how can I make this person's life easier today or this week or this month or this year? What can I specifically do to lift a burden off of this person to make their life easier? This might uh, start with uh, discovering what your spiritual gifts are and actually using them in the church. 
You love people in the church when you know what your gifts are and you are using those gifts in the church. My gift is, uh, one of my gifts is teaching. I love you when I take the time to prepare the word of God and to present it to you. To tell you when you're doing right and when you're doing wrong. To tell you who God is. I love you. Other people love by making sure that if there's an event here, that it's set up. They're, they're behind the scenes. No one knows who's setting it up. No one knows who's taking it down. But they love God's people by doing that. They love God's people by coming and cutting the grass, right? So that it looks nice out there. Okay, there's tons of ways to love people, but you're basically asking, what can I do to make someone's life easier? How can I serve? At the very least, this is what I'm going to say. It involves being connected with people in the church. You cannot just come on a Sunday morning, listen, sing a few songs, and then leave. You actually need to get to know the people in the church. You need to know what their needs are. You need to know what their desires are, and you need to meet those needs. All right? Now, I know that we're in a pandemic. I know that not everyone has returned to church. You can actually talk to people on the phone, right? You can do that. You can communicate. How are you doing? Are, are you okay? Is there anything that you need? Okay? You need to be connected with the church. You cannot just come, be an island to yourself, and then leave. Because you can't love people if you're not in the presence of people. Once again, it doesn't have to be the physical presence of people. But you have to be with people. Well, Paul goes on and he says this, love does not envy Okay, uh, which means that love uh, can look at another person's accomplishments and another person's status in the church and not become jealous, even if they haven't accomplished what this person has accomplished. Love is not jealous. Further, love does not boast. No matter how gifted a person is in the church, they always realize that their giftedness comes from God and that without him, they would be absolutely nothing and be able to do absolutely nothing. And so they don't brag. It doesn't boast. He goes on, love is not arrogant or rude. And then he says, love does not insist on its own way. Perhaps this is where we fail the most because we have this uh, false notion that the world actually revolves around us, that I am the most important thing. And that when my needs are not met, when I am not noticed, then suddenly I adopt this victim mentality. Woe is me. Everyone's against me. I hate this church. I hate this person. Why? Because they didn't give me the attention that I need. They didn't do what I think that they they need to do. Love does not push its own agenda. He goes on, love is not irritable. This means that it's not easily provoked. Once again, I just think, you know, a lot of times the very, the slightest um, odd look from someone sets us off, right? Oh, they angry at me, right? Or an unintentional word, oh, they said this. And we're provoked. Oh, I guess I don't like them. You know, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to fight against them. All right? Love lets it roll off of its back, especially if they don't know what the person's intentions were. <laughs> right? Because Satan just loves to say, this is what they meant. And love says, I have no idea if that's what they meant, and I'm not going to be provoked by it. And even if that is what they meant, I'm not going to be provoked by it. Okay? Love is not easily provoked. Love is not resentful. This is an accounting term uh, of someone like keeping the books and keeping every transaction. Another translation says this, love keeps no record of wrong. 
Love does not hold a secret, either physical or mental journal, calculating and uh, recording every single... Oh, she said it again. Oh, did this again. So that it can be easily accessed at a later time. Oh, uh, you did this before, and it pulls it out. You know what love does? Love purges the records. Love shreds it all. It burns it all. It gets rid of, if you will, all of the evidence so there's none against that person anymore. He goes on and says this, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love knows that truth is the only thing that can bring lasting happiness. And so when love sees someone living in sin, love goes and confronts them on that sin and talks about that sin and says, I don't want you to go in the wrong way. And I'm not sitting here pointing out your sin to be arrogant. I'm pointing out your sin because I love you and I don't want you to go down that way. That's what the loving person does. Finally, he says this. He gives these bullet points. Love bears all things. To bear all things literally means to cover over in silence. To cover over in silence, to conceal. Love protects a person from public scorn and shame. That's what it does. It only reveals another person's sins to those who need to know, and it's always only for the purpose of bringing spiritual restoration to that person. It's never about gossip. And love will say to those people who are curious but don't need to know, it's not your business. It's not your business what they did. It's not your concern. Love conceals. Love protects. It covers over in silence. He's, secondly, he says this, love believes all things. Love is not suspicious or cynical. Uh, when it covers or conceals a wrong, it also believes in the best outcome of it. It believes that the, that the person who has done the wrong will confess that sin. They will be forgiven and they will, they will be restored to righteousness. Then he says this, love hopes all things. When it runs out of faith, love holds on to hope. Love knows that as long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. That's what it knows. So it hopes all things. And then finally he says this, love endures all things. Love endures all things at all costs. It stands against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing, refuses to stop believing, refuses to stop hoping. It refuses to stop loving. Which is why, he says in verse 8, love never ends. This is what it means to love each other. Loving each other, let me remind you, is a command from Almighty God. It is not an option. So you better be looking at this and saying, what exactly does this mean? Because this is a command from God. Is this kind of love here that Paul heard was being expressed in the Ephesian church and which caused him to break forth into thanksgiving to God for them. This uh, is what would bring any shepherd, any pastor of any church joy to see his people having faith in the Lord Jesus and having a love towards other people. This is what brings the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, joy in his church as well. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus were writing a letter to Galveston Bible Church and he was looking at you specifically, would he be able to say, I thank my father 
for your faith in me. I thank my father that you trust me implicitly, even if it costs you your job or a friendship or whatever. I thank my father that you seek to obey all of my commands. Would he be able to say, I thank, I also thank my father that you love all the people in your church very well, that you are patient and kind towards them, that you're not holding a grudge against them, that your love for all the people never ends. Would Jesus be able to say that about you? Let me say this. There is a sense the answer is yes. Because once again, Jesus was all of these things for you and me. Jesus lived this love out perfectly and then actually gave that love to us. We are this in Christ. But you and I know that our position in Christ is not always matched by our practice in Christ. And so we should have a great desire to make sure that our practice, our day-to-day living, actually matches our position of what Jesus has done for us. That Christ is formed in us and that every day we're becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we conduct ourselves when we're in the presence of other people. God has called us on this journey together. He has placed you and me side by side in his mission. And Satan, the great enemy of us, is is doing everything in his power to pull us apart. Everything. So let's trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he gives us this command. Let's love each other the way that he has loved us and the way that he has commanded us to love one another. And let's work hard in the power of the Holy Spirit to see that this is accomplished and that Christ is magnified in our lives and in the world. This is what we should be taking into 2021. That devotion to Christ, that faith in him, that trusts, and that love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word It cuts, but it cuts in a good way. Lord, I know that Satan is present here. I know that he is saying that everything that I said, you don't need to think about that or remember that. You're hungry. Uh, There's a game on today. Um, You need to be thinking about this week. You're going back to school. Um, Lord, he's going to try to distract us. And so I pray, God, that we would know what love is and that we would put it into practice. Lord, this is your command because you love your church. You love us. And you want us to flourish. And this is the only way that we can flourish. And so we pray that you would do this in our lives for your sake. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.